Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Man, well, good morning. It's really good to see you. This is uh, probably the most of our family we've had together uh, since we've come back for COVID. So I am uh, I'm happy to be able to worship with you. I'm happy that we get to gather here um, together. We are... Um, pushing forward in our series over the Beatitudes this week. So as we do that, um, breaking a little over halfway in, I don't know about you, but the text preached by Jesus himself that are the Beatitudes, uh, they have been challenging in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. Uh, We started this series with a pretty clear hope uh, that we wouldn't lose ourselves in the middle of an already difficult year that's going to be merging with a a, a toxic political battle or a lot of tension in a political battle. We hope that the political messages about flourishing and and happiness, that those wouldn't be uh, things that overshadow the words of Jesus about flourishing in the Christian life. So we're tackling this going like, hey, there's all of these messages about how we get to flourishing. Let's remember what Jesus says as well. And, and while I think that purpose is going to be achieved, I think God had maybe just a little bit bigger plan than we did as uh, really this, this series has taken a more personal angle in at our hearts than probably we expected. Exposing things like uh, maybe we had been okay with not thinking about whether our personal sin grieved us anymore. We hit that in the second beatitude and whether we actually hungered and thirsted for righteousness or if we were just fine without it. And as we keep going in this series, the aim will not be to shame ourselves into uh, obedience in any way, but it is, however, to acknowledge that these beatitudes are here to show us all what Christ aims to do. And here's the important part in every single human heart of those who follows him. That means Jesus um, is not in this text of the Beatitudes. He's not singling out different people groups and giving particular rewards to people who uh, manifest particular virtues as if, okay, hey, you guys are the good at meek people, so you guys get to inherit the earth while you guys are the hunger and thirst for righteousness and you over here, you get to be satisfied. That would be a complete miss of the enormity of what Jesus is showing us here. Jesus is sharing, uh, all my people by the Holy Spirit are able to and equipped and meant to walk out these beatitudes. Uh, Because of that, we must emphasize that Jesus uh, chose these beatitudes carefully. If we are all meant to and equipped to and able to live them out, Jesus didn't just randomly go, oh, I got to talk in five minutes. What are are eight or or nine good points to throw out there? These aren't haphazard. These are very specific. This is Jesus' manifesto for what happens to a person when Christ is working in their heart how God will transform a sinful people into the light of the world. I heard my friend and fellow pastor, Justin Dean, say it this way that I I thought was just helpful. The Beatitudes are God's fingerprints on God's people. They're supposed to be on all of the people, though. Because these Beatitudes are meant to be present in the life of every single believer, Jesus presents them in the Sermon on the Mount in a a logical and progressive order. Essentially, they build on one another. One leads to the next, which leads to the next, and so on. In broad strokes, the Beatitudes started with, and this is what we've already covered in the first weeks, our personal need. That seeing our situation, our poor in spiritness, is something that we become aware of. 
and, and then after that, we see our actions. We've struggled to follow Jesus, and we understand that. And then meekness kind of takes over, which is a submission to God, which is the antithesis for the world's posture of lashing out to get power. We have the humility. Once we know what we need and we know the reality of our resume and how we've acted, we begin to let God lead instead of needing to win or believe that we are better leaders than he is. This is the initial building box of the Christian life. This is meant to be baseline. These are our needs. This is what's happening inside of us. Notice all of those first ones are internal postures. That is, they start out in the head and the heart. They get accepted and processed there. Then the fourth beatitude last week was about our will, what we want in life, what we desire in life. So once our internal, our, our internal postures are clear, honest, and humble, those postures move from, here's the progression, our mind into the realm of what our will is and what we want out of life. That's important. Living like Christ isn't what we have to do. It actually becomes what we want to do. Why? Because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because we realize that Jesus actually is better. He's not a harsh master who's trying to take our fun away. He actually is better than anything else that we chase after. So we hunger and thirst for him more than other things. Now today we cross into the fifth beatitude, which is the last category, our actions. Again, see the, see the progression that Jesus lays out because it's very intentional. What we accept and acknowledge internally in our head and our heart traverses into the realm of our wants and our desires, and then our desires are, begin to manifest themselves in our actions. What we think affects what we want, which then affects what we do. This means Christianity takes place in every facet of the life, the mind, the will, and the actions. Now, this is important because we often kind of miss this one. If the gospel is to penetrate into our lives and touch everything, it cannot only stay in our actions. It has to change our hearts. But it also can't stay in our hearts. It also has to change our actions. It has to go all places. Nothing is off limits to Christ. Not our head, not our heart, not our hands. Jesus reigns in all places for those who follow him. Now, this was the mistake of the religious leaders back then. Remember, there was two main groups that were hearing this message, the Jewish religious leaders uh, and then the, the Romans. But the Jewish religious leaders back then, they were fine with letting their faith only affect their external behavior, right? They do all the washing rituals and they tithe and they'd stay away from sinful people, but they never let or wanted their faith to kind of work inside the, the, the recesses of their heart. They thought their actions uh, were ones that appeared good and in line. And as long as my actions are good in line, then right, it's, it's probably good enough. And, and they didn't care about their heart which is why Jesus comes out preaching that the heart matters greatly. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says some controversial things to them. Hey, anger in the heart is the same as murder to me. Lusting after one that doesn't belong to you is the same as committing adultery to me. What he's saying is what happens in your heart matters very, very, very much. And he kind of capped all of this off by calling the religious leaders whitewashed tombs which meant that they looked really nice and, and clean and they looked put together and polished on the outside, but on the inside, there, there, was, there was death, there was, there was filth, they were an enigma, the outside and the inside do not match. Now, if we look more in broad terms of our modern generation and maybe even our problem, uh, many in modern days have the exact opposite disposition of the Jewish leaders though. By and large, many people are worried about the heart. 
They prioritize what they agree on, what they feel, while the area of their actions, that doesn't seem to matter nearly as much. And this probably comes from from what we call an over-realized understanding of the theology of grace. Because God saves us while we're still sinners, because our actions aren't what save us, that beautiful gift has then been overemphasized to the point that we mistakenly believe that actions don't matter to God or that we don't have to try hard or work towards holiness or, or hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here's the tension. We talked about it in, in my missional community even this week that we need to make sure to get straight. Grace is not opposed to action or effort. Grace is only opposed to earning in the Christian life. That means grace says you don't earn or merit your way into the family of God. But once we are in, we could and should give effort to and energy to let Jesus affect our behavior. Another way to think of it is our actions don't save us, but the actions of those who are saved should look more like Jesus. Now the text for today, we'll um, read through Matthew 5, 1 through 7 and jump into this one, this first action beatitude. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his uh, disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There it is, the first beatitude that's aimed directly at our actions, at what we do. These action beatitudes become in many ways application beatitudes because they're supposed to be applied into the realm of our life. They're they're supposed to be uh, found in the visible parts of what we do. This first action that Jesus uh, brings up in a list of several is mercy, though. The action of being merciful to others. I wonder this morning, do you think you're merciful right now? Have you thought about it? Do you think that you give other people mercy right now? And and if you would answer like, yes, of course I'm merciful, then then maybe I would press you to think a little bit about it today and over the next couple days. Why do you think that? What have you done that's actually merciful? And that's not a statement of of definitely just prove yourself. We have to make sure that these action beatitudes are actually fleshing themselves out into the realm of what we really do. This beatitude will force us to answer and examine in tangible senses, are we merciful? Are there real situations with real people where we have shown mercy? We probably already know this. Respect is not an idea. It is found also in the actions. Love is not just a vague idea either. It's also found in the actions. Mercy will be the same way. It's not a vague idea. It'll take physical form and it'll show up in what we do. But that still requires us to zero in on a specific question. What is mercy? When angling in to answer that question, we may find that we actually have some muddied waters. Maybe we'll realize that mercy has become kind of a junk drawer term where where we realize we throw all these things into this drawer that we call mercy. Maybe we even use ministry titles like mercy ministries to describe things like uh, helping out someone or or volunteering at the food pantry or visiting the home of an elderly person to show them kindness. And while those things fulfill showing kindness and grace, 
those things do not involve the kind of mercy that Jesus is specifically talking about here in the text. To grasp this, we have to differentiate the difference between compassion and mercy. Those are both good. They're both valuable. They're both needed, but they're not the same. Compassion is to take pity on someone who is helpless or needy. Uh, Think maybe uh, see a need, meet a need, especially in the realm of the least of these, someone who is helpless. Mercy, though, is to take pity or help someone who possibly has actually sinned against you. It's to take pity and help someone who possibly owes you. It is to take pity on and help someone who's busted up specifically because of their sin in that situation. That is the situation that you have, that you have mercy. And see, mercy is different because it's not as much to how we respond to the least of these as to how we respond all of a sudden when we find ourselves in a position of power. That's the key difference. When we have the power over a person around us, when you get power or authority, when you get the upper hand, maybe when you have someone dead to rights in a situation, uh, what do you do with it? Do you get them? Do you demean them? Do you shame them? Do you cold shoulder them? What do you do when you have the power? Do you pity and help them out of the situation or do you leverage the situation? This becomes difficult, right? Because after church, if you're going, man, I I think I struggle with mercy, and you drive to the corner of Stadium and Broadway, and you're like looking for the guy to give the $10 bill, that's a nice thing, but it's not mercy. It's not that easy. It's kindness, but again, it's not mercy. Mercy is tougher because most of the time, mercy is shown when we pull up unexpectedly to a situation and how we deal with it in the realm of other people. One of the unexpected blind spots of 2020 for me has been a show called Cobra Kai. Right? Don't watch it around your kids. Um, But it's a series that's a continuation of The Karate Kid, right? It's a blast from my past to watch it. I also had to try and catch Allie up. And she was like, I've never seen this. You're like, oh my gosh. But in the show, the storyline picks up over 30 years later after the very first movie. And in the original movie, there was this good guy, Daniel LaRusso, and a bad guy, Joey Lawrence. They kept butting heads. They kept fighting. But this bad guy, Johnny, he was a part of this karate gang, this dojo gang called Cobra Kai. Right? They're all bad dudes. They're the bullies. Uh, and, and their motto, the way they did all things, was this single statement, strike fast, strike hard, no mercy. They essentially live by that code. And, and when they found themselves in any situation, when they were squared up with anyone in life, they made sure that they were the aggressors and they didn't give up. No matter what happened, do not lose your power. Take advantage of your power. And this even kind of culminated in the end of an episode where they yelled, finish them, because they would not have mercy on anyone. They believed in destroying people. Although this is just a show, it does help us better illustrate what mercy is, though. It's refusing to aggressively act out around or on the people around you when you find yourself on top, in power, or with the authority, especially when that other person has done you wrong or sinned you, sinned against you. But mercy goes even further, though. It's not just restraint to not hurt someone. It's pity and help to help them get out of or resolve the situation that you're in. Hear that, that's difficult. When you have been sinned against, it's not just not lowering the hammer on someone, it's it's extending the hand and helping them out. That just kind of messes with all of our sense of, of entitlement. 
hear this, Matthew 18, 23 through 35, there is a story that perfectly goes into this mercy. I'm going to read through it fairly quickly, but this is in Matthew. Therefore, the king of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a ton of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had in payment to be made. So the servant, he fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, remember pity and then action, out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and, uh, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported this to the master, everything that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to everyone if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This parable is hard, but it's perfect for this. It shows the exact mercy that Jesus is talking about, right? A king wanted to settle debts. I'm going to settle it all. I'm going to get it taken care of. A servant owed him 10,000 talents. This is supposed to be a number that conveys an insane amount. It's too much for someone to pay off. The king initially decides to throw his whole family in, uh, into servitude to pay off the debt, sell everything they owe. The guy's like, please, please, please don't do that. He falls to his knees. He begs him. The king has pity and doesn't crush him. He doesn't just uh, give him more time, though, to pay off the debt. What does he do? He actually extends a way to help him, and he lets him off the hook for the debt. Then the freshly forgiven servant walks out free from his unimaginable debt. And as soon as he does that, he rolls up on a guy who owed him a little pocket change compared to what he owed, a tiny amount. The servant says, okay, I want my money. You owe me something. And he takes his moment of power. All of a sudden, what happens when you find yourself in power? He takes his moment of authority and he uses it to not have pity on the man or help him. He actually lashes out and, and starts choking the guy in the story, sends him off to jail to pay the small debt. Fast forward even more. The king hears what happens and he's angered and he declares, here's the key. I forgave you. Why wouldn't you forgive? In understanding mercy, that is the key. I forgave you. I gave you mercy. Why wouldn't you extend the same? The king tosses the servant in jail. He declared that he did have to pay the debt. All that he owed before it was no longer forgiven. Let's double back for a moment and remember the thrust of this beatitude. Happy and flourishing are the merciful. Again, it's not saying do this because I said Happy and flourishing are the merciful. This beatitude seems to stand in the opposition of so much that we see around us. Right now, we seem to see very little mercy. 
We see a world that acts a whole lot more like the Cobra Kai motto, strike hard, strike fast, get them, no mercy. We leverage our moments of power to wring every drop of the moment out that we can. I wonder if you might have done that before. Have you had a person dead to rights somehow? Have them in the wrong. They owe you. They sinned against you. You were clearly right. All of a sudden, something happened with someone that you know where where you captured the power and you used it. Maybe you didn't outright smash them. Maybe you didn't choke them in the parable, but maybe your lack of mercy was more subtle and maybe even more sinister. You just wouldn't let it go. You see, we can refuse to give mercy by continually shaming a person, by continually reminding them in sly ways, hey, you remember when you did that thing wrong? See, we can refuse to give mercy by keeping power over a person. Instead of letting it go, we just keep holding on to something over their head. And this can happen in a whole lot of ways because there's a lot of times where, like, man, I don't do that. How many times do you passively, aggressively leave a text because you don't want to talk to him yet? Is that merciful? How many times when you get a call do you answer the phone? What? Just had a bad day. Is that merciful? See, mercy is pity that extends a hand to try and fix the problem. See, I think that we believe because we're not attacking everyone around that we're merciful when maybe we just really like the sense of power and keeping it and that's not merciful. See, though the world says keep the power, it'll make you happy. Jesus specifically is telling us it won't make you happy. I promise you, it's not going to work out the way that you want. Sam Storm says this, and especially in the climate that we're in, I find it valuable. The test of true biblical morality is not whether it makes you tougher, but whether it makes you tenderer, if that's a word. Right? Our, our world believes power is captured. Be strong. And, and yet Jesus preaches a message of turn the other cheek and love them. See, that line is perfect to lead us into the back end of this beatitude. Notice what this beatitude actually says with me for a moment. Blessed are those who are merciful for they shall receive mercy. Guys, this one's hard because many, many, many a theological battles have been born out of this single verse. Because it seems to say at face value that our ability to show mercy is directly tied to the amount of mercy that you get. Then tie in that verse at the end of the parable at Matthew 18 when it says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. It looks like our forgiveness and our mercy giving is correlated to what we get. But if we take it to mean that, if we take it at face value in that way, then that causes us a really big problem because then all of a sudden we have a a salvation by actions and we have to throw out really the rest of the entire New Testament. That would mean we can't preach salvation by grace alone through faith alone anymore because salvation would now come through forgiving. Surely that can't be what it means though. So what do we do with this? Especially when we find a text 
that seems to be saying the opposite of everything else the Bible says. And one of the early rules of studying the Bible is let scripture interpret scripture, meaning go to the other places and maybe see if we've angled in wrong. So to to figure out what this verse means, we can go back and remember the order of the Beatitudes. And I think if we look it over again, it'll actually become quite clear. Remember the flow. Blessed are, happy are, flourishing are those who see their condition. I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who see that they cannot buy their way out of their own sin. There's a debt that they could never pay off on their own. Blessed are those people. And when that reality then ends up going into a person seeing the depths of their sin as well, I am poor in spirit and and I'm also one who sins. I sin on purpose against God. I know the right thing to do and at times I just don't do it. See, this lowly position causes us to mourn. We know who we are. I'm poor in spirit. We know what we've done. I do the wrong thing more often than I would like to admit. And we grieve this and are broken about it. And that leads to this new position where we're not so self-righteous. Where we aren't always looking to get our way and exert our will. Because when we've been made low and we realize our poor in spiritness, we're going, hey, when I'm in control, things go sideways. So maybe it's better that God is in control. All of a sudden, when we see our past lack of righteousness, we don't want to live that way anymore, and we want to be more like Jesus, and then we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness to look more like him, right? I see what I need. I see that I'm poor in spirit. I see my actions. I see that I need to let God lead and not try and always get my way. I begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to live differently. If all of those things have happened in our heart and our will, if all of those happened prior, then at the moment when we seize power and we're sinned against by another, our response is filtered through that entire grid of the Beatitudes that, come, that came before. What does that mean? We often get to a, cert, a, a situation and we believe that maybe our response is random or due to a bad night's sleep or something else like that. When we get to a moment where we seize power, our action won't be random all of a sudden though. Our action flows through our need and our will. Our action flows through, man, I'm poor in spirit. I've done wrong. So when sinned against, we see the pity of another person who has sinned just like we have. When we see their situation, we see how once we were lost in our sin as well, maybe even the same sin. How at times we've done wrong, even when we know better. And even despite all of that, how Jesus hasn't smashed us, but he's given us mercy. How Jesus used his power to help those who sinned, not crush them. And because of that mercy we've been shown, because we've actually felt it and tasted it and experienced it, And because we want to be like Jesus, in that moment, we help the one who has less power than we do instead of hurting them. I hope this makes sense. All of the need and the will comes before the action. A lot of times when we aim at changing the action, it doesn't work. Why? Because your head and your will aren't there. What this beatitude is saying is not only is not that we'll just get forgiven if we forgive others, but that people who are truly forgiven, they will forgive others. 
a person who has been given mercy and wants to be like the one who gave them mercy, what will they do? They'll give mercy. And if a person absolutely refuses to forgive or show mercy to another, it is proof that they haven't experienced mercy themselves or they're not at the moment. Why do you think in the New Testament and other places they say things like, hey, before you go take communion, you better forgive your brother? Church, this is where things get difficult in our own hearts, though, because to truly be merciful, it is to see people who've sinned against you no longer as your enemy, no longer just as the person who did you wrong, but instead to see them as one who's trapped in sin. To be merciful is to extend a hand to help them out of the trap that they are in instead of smash them so that you get your version of justice or retribution. This is what's hard. We have to, in order to show mercy, make less things all about us. We have to begin going, it's sin that did that. And I want them out of that, just like I want myself to be out of it. What makes it even trickier past that is showing mercy doesn't always end up perfect. You could have a person who's suffering because of their sin or sinned against you and you show them mercy. You lower the need to get them or make them pay for what they did believing, right? Have you ever done something believing like, they're gonna thank me later for this? But what happens when the fairy tale ending never comes and they don't thank you later? There is no applause and they actually do it again. See, the hard part of showing mercy is that we are not guaranteed an earthly reward and we're not guaranteed how the other person will react. This is the reality of following Christ. We do it because it's who Jesus is making us. Not because we believe we'll kind of catch this Christian karma of things will just work out better for me if I show them mercy, so I guess I have to do this. The world may never applaud our mercy. They may actually mock it. They may call it weakness. But here's the beautiful truth. The more mercy we show to others, regardless of the way that that mercy is accepted, the more that we will feel the mercy of God given to us. See, the deeper we'll sense the magnitude of Jesus extending mercy first to us in that way, we will receive mercy now, just maybe not from the person that we're giving it to. Whether it be marriage, friendships, community, the best way to feel the love, forgiveness, grace, and mercy of Jesus is to actually have to step into it by extending it to another person. It's one thing to say, Jesus forgave me, but not really think of what it took to have to forgive you. But then when you get into a situation and you have to forgive someone from a legitimate thing that they did to you, all of a sudden you understand just a little bit of what Jesus did and you go, oh my, he really did care. He really was merciful. Why? Because you're having to absorb and step in a wrong. This is the way that we understand the love of Jesus more by applying it to other people. Here's the truth. Christ came, laid down his power, and he was killed to give mercy. Thank God for that because if he had not, we would not have the ability to be saved. But since he has, he now calls us to live in and feel the mercy that he has given us and then show that mercy to the world around us by extending it as we live. 
Perhaps the clearest light that we could shine into our world right now is the light of Christ's mercy, of unmerited kindness given to those who've actually done us wrong. And that takes so many different angles right now. It it means intention instead of lashing out, extending a hand to love someone. Instead of writing that witty thing to someone to get them, maybe it's to message someone and go, can I have conversation with you about this? See, the best way to show Jesus is not to act like the rest of the world in difficult things like tension. Our hope today, church, is, is simple, that we would wrestle with the magnitude of Christ's mercy and that now we would see the incredible gift of his mercy given to us so much so that that mercy would spill out onto the canvas of our life. As we take communion today, the hope is that we'll be, extend, that we'll be uh, strengthened by the mercy extended to us. And I don't know that I have a ton of great applications for this one besides just plain praying spirit, will you help me? Will you help show me if I am merciful? Will you show me situations where mercy is needed? Will you show me how to live and love and be more like Christ? Be strengthened by the mercy given to you and ask the spirit to help you give it to others. Again, when we test this going, I don't know, that's gonna be hard. We have to remember Jesus's words. Yeah, but you'll be happier and flourish this way. Even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, even if it's hard in the moment, Jesus says, this is where flourishing comes from. I pray that we'd be bold enough to trust him in that. Here's the text for communion. Garrett, you can come up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, what a better place to remember mercy than when we take communion. We are those who owed a great debt, who directly sinned against a holy God. And when he had every moment and every right to crush us, he extended a hand and God the Father made a way. I pray that that would well up in gratitude in us. Slowly but surely, we'd begin to see that felt mercy in the way we live around us. God, thank you for today. I pray that you build us into your people through these texts. I pray that we wouldn't be content with maybe one beatitude or or two manifesting itself in our life, but I pray that we would be those that begin to hunger and thirst to deeply live these things out, that our trust would grow in you, that any sense of duty or obligation would fall to the side, but that we would see your mercy and love and it would begin to change us, God. We ask for that in the middle of the tension coming around us that's already here and that is still be coming over the next couple months. God, I pray that we would be tangible light. There would be real moments of not braggery, but worship where we know that we showed mercy to someone. That we know that we cared for someone. That we know that we created peace instead of war in the world around us. God, I pray that you would do that. And not just so we could slap hands and high five, but that so other people would see you through it and come to know you. Do your work in us, even in the difficult issues. We pray that in your name. God, be glorified today. We love you. Amen.